You're listening to Ink Studs, and my guest this week is Tim Goodyear. Uh, Tim's new book, uh, well, not so new, it came out uh, in the spring, uh, is Video Tonfa from uh, the fine comic store in Portland, where Tim is sitting in the middle of uh, Floating World Comics, um, as Tim explains to me. It is uh, New Comic Wednesday, so he's there late getting everyone's boxes ready and the new stuff put out. Uh, I don't know how the selection of comics is for this week, but I'm sure there are at least a couple of decent things out. Uh, oh, t- yeah, there's a, there's a new Richard Corbin comic today, oh, or tomorrow. We will have to talk about Corbin. I have some specific things I want to talk about with you about Corbin. Okay. Um, cool. As well, Tim is the publisher of Teenage Dinosaur uh, out of Portland, uh, which is a underrepresented online. <laughs> I think... Uh, do you even have a website for it? No. <laughs> I, I don't have a computer, so I mean, I feel like I would be, <clears throat> yeah, I would really be pushing my luck with uh, with a friend constantly if I tried to run a, a website or anything like that without a computer. Uh, no, Teenage Dinosaur, um, you've been doing that for a number of years. Um, I think yeah. you published the first issue of Matt Fury's Boys Club, which I think was the issue that had the... Uh, the infamous panel that ruined his life in it. Ah, <laughs> uh, poor Pepe. As yeah, well. yeah. I'm not exactly. I, I didn't chase the the lineage or the, the stampage of his face. I know that at one point people were keeping track of that stuff. Um, 
I mean, it's it's like what like the Bill Watterson thing, you know, where it just kind of gets out of hand. But it's also interesting because it's it's one of these things that's it's bigger than like yeah. he's like struck in some core. Like <clears throat> I would notice that like racetracks, there was a lot of bootleg Tasmanian devils, you know, and I was like, oh, like Taz is really huge, like in some kind of bootleggy way in this culture. Yeah. And I, it's really interesting when things move out that way. But yeah, yeah, that was just a good comic, man. Yeah. <clears throat> Still is a good comic, too. I think uh, Matt Fury is uh, a stellar, amazing uh, artist and cartoonist. And it's really interesting to see like that. It's actually like his really early primitive stuff. Yeah. And where he's gone to from then is just so much further. Um, as well, your early publisher of uh dashaws yeah dash was the book book yeah the book before boys club was goddess head that was the first teenage dinosaur book oh really yeah i did not know that um now if there is a fair amount that you've published anything we can huge stack uh you co-published uh with spark plug reno yang's uh book um oh my god i can't remember the name of it right no now. no i didn't do that one that oh, was oh. with no that was uh tugboat and oh jesus that, i'm sorry that's a great, no no that's a great book though it is uh i fully condone that book yeah good job not helping out <laughs> uh but there was some other stuff you co-published with spark um, wasn't there yeah yeah we did sausage hand yeah andrew smith yeah one of the things i was thinking about is there's always this phrase about uh, with Dillian, with D- with Dylan Williams and Spark Plug, he was always publishing the stuff that no one else would publish. And some of the stuff I'm looking at with what you did with Teenage Dinosaur, it's like you kind of did that to the next level, where it's, it's like it's interesting because there's sort of a the timeline with that stuff is that I started Teenage Dinosaur and put that book into production, and then I moved to Portland, and that's where Dylan and I actually became friends we had run into each other in the bay area before but totally generically you know there was no relevant conversation or anything um and he had had some experiences that were similar to a few experiences that i was having at the time and what i saw there was that um like you were saying he would pick books that weren't like just like ringers or whatever you know like and I, and I sort of realized there was this thing like, oh, yeah, when you spot that somebody is like just fucking amazing and everybody else can see that too and you're trying to publish them, you're in some form of competition with mm. these other publishers. And so that book is already going to get published regardless of you. And, yeah, what I realized with all that was is that, okay, there's – books that people might not see that you know books that aren't going to get published or aren't going to get you know brought to a publisher's attention that should be published and so it's just an extra level of paying attention to what's going on in the comics already so at, at the point that i published dash like anybody that was already paying attention to him saw that he was just like snowballing like he's constantly getting better and goddess head is essentially a bunch of his short stories from going through uh, art school from uh, so, days 
Yeah, and he had a meat house collection from before then called Garden Head. Um, and he had had those two issues of Love Eats Brains. So we were aware of him and like we had him in a anthology we did called Garish Zao Comics. And uh, yeah, we were doing this collection with him. So he, you know, you could already see that he was going someplace and that that book probably would have, you know, found a publisher without me, you know? Yeah. But I didn't really have any awareness of that at the time. Uh, later on, I sort of recognized the unique power of being a publisher is that, like, oh, you can really, like, sometimes get books to come out that would not have come out otherwise. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing. And I think that that was a more, that's a more unique thing. Like, I wouldn't want to chase, you know, doing a famous guy at this point because cause they're already, you know, going to get their book put out by somebody. So I might as well, you know, put my, you know, put my bet on somebody that's that's not getting represented yet or anymore sometimes yeah because sometimes an artist will just do a book and then they'll be like oh i made 20 and then i got sick of standing in the kinkos so i made 20 of them and it's like oh well this is an amazing comic you know you spent a year making it then there's 20 copies and then that's it and it's just like shit you should be able to make more than 20 copies so you'll go to kinkos and sit at home and do the folding. Yeah, yeah, I'll do all that stuff. And depending on the book, I mean, sometimes we go to a printer. But um, I actually use the uh, UPS store. Okay. Yeah. Now, um, before... better music. Okay. I, I, I don't <laughs> think I've spent any time in a UPS store, um, but I'll I'm sure it's different you. location to location. This one just ha- doesn't have unmanageable music taste. Um, now I was, as I was looking for a teenage dinosaur website and I couldn't find one, uh, you do have a Wikipedia page and I'm presuming a friend of yours wrote this (laughs) and I'm going to guess, oh, go ahead. Oh, oh, uh, you can, no, I mean, I don't know. I was, I will answer your question, but I'll let you get to it first. (laughs) Um, there's a bunch of descriptions like the work you published and yada yada and then there's a thing in popular culture and this is where I'm figuring Jesse Recklaw probably did it is uh, mentions that you appear uh, as yourself in uh, his book tour diary and self-help book 10,000 Things to Do which was uh, Jesse Recklaw's excellent tiny little mini comic series he did many years ago uh, yes that is that is a true entry uh, followed by Goodyear has appeared outside doing things, but sometimes enjoys the indoor gentleman <laughs> lifestyle. He yes. fre- frequently uh, sports a so-called Canadian tuxedo, as seen in the compilation Dope Flounder. Um, now, was some it... of these things are true. Some of these things are fantastical. You know, <laughs> I like... no, it's a. Uh, you're right that there was more than one person. I don't know if Jesse Recklaw actually made any of the amendments on the page the page was built by uh by a friend brody and he had made a page for a ton of cartoonists in town and they all went up and then a bunch of them got pulled down which is weird but i guess they didn't have enough uh reference points on the on the internet yeah which i guess is a relevant thing for them to have a relevant thing that you Um, actually exist 
Right, that they can cross-reference you with other things that have credibility already. They're like, oh, you're in this, and we have that, and there you go. There's the table of contents, and there you are. Like, you're legit because you're in, you know, whatever this famous thing is. So, but yeah, mine stayed up. Um, and then I was I was getting into Wikipedia because I, uh, I was at a job where we had some, like, kind of downtime and so I was kind of trying to find things on the internet that weren't too uh, poisonous or whatever and so you just read things on Wikipedia and you can like follow the links between things and you like wind up reading all these trippy articles mm-hmm. uh, and Dylan yeah Dylan was like well you know not all that stuff's true either that stuff just needs to be like fact checked and all that stuff so he went on there later on and he put uh, he put some of that stuff on there about like whatever my clothes and stuff like that (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if those things are really relevant you know but i don't think anybody really cares enough to go and change it either um i am in that jesse recklaw book though which you know that's a pretty captivating book he's got all these graphs at the bottom of the page have you read it yeah the, the graphs are like how many drinks he's had how many pills he's had and what how many caffeines he's had and, and maybe maybe some waters. Hopefully he's tracking those waters. I think there's also a pain scale, too. Yeah, he's essentially telling you just a lot of stuff by the fact that he's made those graphs. But, um, yeah. No, um, that was really interesting to see how Jesse did that stuff. It's funny. I mentioned Brody earlier and Jesse now. Um, they were sort of instrumental in me coming to the decision to do those video tonfas. Oh, okay. Uh, I overheard them talking about their autobiographical comics, and Brody said something like, I noticed each panel is like a six-hour segment of the day, roughly, and then, you know, they're kind of like, yes, but, you know, these other things happen, but, you know, yeah, roughly, this is like a framework to use. I remember thinking to myself, geez, man, I wouldn't want to (laughs) draw all that shit, but I, I do watch a movie every night. I think that would be cool if I just, like, drew a picture from like a movie that I watched every night and that was uh, that amongst a bunch of uh, other things that were going on in my life were you know that was an interesting thing that kind of helped lead to the idea of drawing the video boxes after I watched them and that's primarily VHS that you would watch things on Um, I think well I mean I'll just watch whatever which is a lot of DVDs also but um, yeah it's VHS, especially before these times now, um, there was a period where it was real trash, you know, people had great film collections, and then they just were like, I don't even own a VCR anymore, and they just had a whole box of them, and, you know, you know, it was just free, or a dollar, or something like that, and it was just all these great movies, so for me, I was just kind of running in the wake of technology, you know, like, holy crap, there's all these, you know, three for a dollar, you know, whole video store is being melted down yeah. so I was just you know I was like oh wow these are great movies like I got you know I don't have that much dough so like that was a ton of movies to be able to watch it's way cheaper than renting them if I don't like them it was like you know whoa 33 cents or something you know like, <laughs> it's just so the, there's a lot of VHS just because it was yeah it was so cheap yeah I guess the lot like five years ago was probably like the prime time for closing video stores yeah, I mean, it's, it's sad, it's sad. too, because, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of, there's a culture gap there that it turns out, unfortunately, there's nobody really policing that. Like, oh, hey, there's a lot of movies that were 
only in this one format, and it never reached another format. So now, had you? But anyways, that's that's not our problem right now. It's a problem for the next generation. Well, I mean, it's just it's another one of those things where people aren't like keeping track of something. But you know, that's that's pop culture for you. Yeah, well, it'll be these one of those things are ephemeral. It, it's one of those things where right now these things are gonna get lost in about fifteen years. There's gonna be like a museum archive collecting them all. It's like the same with like mini comics at this point. Like things from like the late '80s are starting to get collected. Um, oh, those little those little books that came out from Fantagraphics, the 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 new wave anthologies. Yeah. Did you see those? Those were great. Yeah, I've got a couple of them. I think there's like two or three. I could. Uh, there's a first one, which is the New Wave book, and then there's like the library of mini comics, or I'm, yeah. sorry, I'm sorry, I'm screwing up the name, I think, but uh, Michael Dowers did those. So I think there's two of those. I think there's three altogether. But man, I mean, that's like a. I would just hope that one of those would come out every six months, you know, and just fill a library with those. So much good stuff. The mini comic treasury, I think, is what they. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. Um, why don't we rewind a bit and sure. uh, and I didn't mean that on purpose. Um, and kind of talk a bit about your history with comics. You mentioned like you started doing Teenage Dinosaur when you moved to Portland. Uh, so you, what were you were you making comics before at all? Like doing mini comics and stuff when you lived in the Bay Area or? Yeah, yeah. Um, I was part of a collective called Hidden Agenda Press, and we did an anthology called Garish Zao Comics. Um, a bunch of us, just we were associated. There was uh, Sam Keenbaum, Michael Allen, John Orloff, and myself. Uh, Michael and I worked at a comic book store together. Sam was one of the customers there. John and Mike had been roommates from college and friends before that like in school I think so we all just had this interest in all these small press comics and I think that that, uh, that book non number five came out yeah. and we all just were like holy shit like we gotta like we gotta get our act together like we're not really doing anything so we put together that company or you know a collective and we put a bunch of mini comics and stuff like that together, um, and, and it went really well. I think it got to the point where it became like a you know financially unreasonable kind of level of growth for us, and so it all you know we all just it broke it apart. But I think everybody's still on good terms. I'm still on good terms with everybody. Um, but from that came the relationship with Dash, and that book was already going so yeah so i was like okay well i'm just gonna it'll just be my thing mm-hmm. and so i had to come up with a new name so i did that and then i moved to portland and the book arrived when i was in portland so so that, that was, was 2005 so that was like that point in your life was a really drastic change it seems like like starting on this bigger project, moving to another city. Yeah, I think I had this realization that even if I'd lived to be 100 years old, I'd already spent more than a quarter of my life in San Jose, and I just kind of wanted to be somewhere else. 
And I just thought I was going to go around to these different uh, big cities and kind of see if there was one I fit with. But uh, now Portland was good, so here I was. Here I am. <laughs> Did you have, like, your intention of what you wanted to do with publishing stuff uh at first and did it how did that change as time went on because you um, came in oh go ahead you came in 2005 and like that's about the same time i started the show and in that time comics have changed amazingly drastically probably in this ridiculous way if you compare it to 95 to 2005 yeah i guess i'm not i don't I'm sure, the, I mean, I know that it has. I think also I've changed probably quite a bit in that time. But, mm -hmm. um, hmm. Like, I mean, your first two books, the Dash book and the Matt Fury book, and looking at a lot of the other stuff I've seen that you've published, it's a lot rougher, more kind of underground looking. Um, was that kind of a natural leaning, or is that not really fair to say of what you're wider range of stuff looks like well there was there was all these things happening when you'd go to a comic convention and that's where I started to realize what I you know maybe I could make some adjustments in the way I was publishing things because um, there was a lot of people there really pushing with you know their production and like and their professionalism and the quality of their work and that's that's a great thing Mm -hmm. um, but some of those people don't necessarily need what I was bringing to the table. Um, so looking outside of that became really important to me. Um, it's not that I didn't find, you know, lots of great books at a show, but looking at the parts of the comics community that are happening outside of people who show up to the show, because yeah. there's a lot of people who don't show up to the shows. Um, so that became an important thing for me, especially after Matt's success. I was like, okay, like I need to kind of continue down a path where this is going to be able to empower the other, the artist. You know, and that was part of my deal is that I give the artist half of the print run mm -hmm. um, because it's, I don't want to have any financial debt to them. I've, realized a lot of artists when they would talk about publishers they would wind up talking about how they didn't get any dough and or you know getting screwed over and i was like well shit i don't want to be that guy like i'm just trying to make things better you know yeah because at some point prior to that i had a revelation because i've been working in comic book stores my whole life and eventually i just had this comic book collection at home where i was just like why am I keeping this? So this, is, this is like a home Smithsonian for like, you know, like Justice League comics and shit like that. Like every, everybody else has this. Like this is absolutely pointless to be archiving these things. These things aren't, you know, they're fun, but they're not relevant. I'm not going to repeat, read all of these things. Some of them I am, of course, but I really went through and I cleared out and I was like, man, if I'm going to spend, you know, all this dough on comics, I might as well be, you know, adding to the culture or empowering the culture or something. Yeah. Instead of just like building up this kind of weird, you know, ornate collection or some crap like that. So I, I kind of had an attitude change before all that. And so this was me sort of refining it as time went by. 
So yeah, I was looking for you know good, just people who were making good comics that weren't really getting represented. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about some of those folks. Um, sure. Al Frank is what I'm curious about. Yeah, no longer Al Frank. Uh, legally changed his name to Casanova. Nobody Frankenstein. Um, so Casanova Frankenstein is his name. Nice. Yes, it's a good one. It's uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love Casanova. I love Bob Burden. It's a uh, it's a good combination in my world. Yeah. But yeah, I, I did put out some books for him prior to that, to the change to Casanova. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's great. He's always been great, and he's another one of those guys where I think he just essentially lost a publisher, lost a publisher, lost a comic to a publisher that didn't get published. And I think that kind of was really, I don't know, I think that probably broke his faith in you know, the comics community or the, the world of what was going on in comics around him. Mm-hmm. And he, got, he kept making comics, but I think he just sort of, I think he published another one on his own, uh, the Mr. X's workplace notebooks, I think. And then later on, I found out he threw most of them into a dumpster because he couldn't figure out how to distribute them because Diamond refused it because it had a black and white cover. So I think all of those things kind of made it really unappealing for him to kind of pursue going down that path. But he continued to make comics on his own. And he would, he had them, a bunch of them on Flickr and all that stuff. They're probably still out there. Um, But yeah, just, you know, talking to him was one of those things where once I did one book with him, he was like, oh, okay, here, here's a bunch of shit. Like, just keep going. Um, So, yeah, I just, that's, for me, that's been a good thing, though, because it's, you know, it's, it's given him a reason to keep putting, you know, bringing out the old ones and I'm actually really behind on releasing one of the old ones that we did together. Um, like, but yeah, he's he's been doing uh, he's been he's been doing much better, I think, with getting his comics out recently. So that's uh, I think he's going to do a book with Fantagraphics now. Oh wow! So yeah, and he's in the Best American Comics, and I think that that's good because those go into libraries. And a lot of people who live in places where there isn't a comics community or there isn't a comic shop with any kind of variety, which is unfortunately a lot of places. Yeah. Um, I have to remember how spoiled I am to live here to have so much variety of comic shops available. Uh, and I had that in San Jose too, so I try to check in with that a lot like to recognize there's one comic shop in like this entire metropolitan area and you have to go six hours away to find another comic shop. And they won't even order past the first 50 pages and previews. Right. So, I mean, for these, like, uh, you know, best American comics collections, those go into libraries all over the place. So people are actually seeing decent comics yeah. in some of these places. So, yeah, for Casanova to be in there is great because he's speaking to a lot of things that I think a lot of people are not willing to talk about. Now, another person you've published a lot of stuff by is uh, Bobby Madness. Totally. 
And yeah. I remember the first time I saw the Bobby Madness stuff at your table, you were just like, Jake and I got some new Bobby Madness, it's awesome! <laughs> I may not with that much enthusiasm, but you were pretty enthusiastic about it. Um, and I, he he's also from the Bay Area? Uh, Bobby Madness is originally from New York. Okay. Um, but then I think that he actually accrued most of his comics fame, his initial wave of comics fame, in the yeah in the San Francisco Bay Area. But then he, uh, in the '90s, he moved up to Portland. And are you his primary publisher? I am the one who puts out his comics, yeah. I think other people, he does books for other people. He did an issue of a zine series called Fluke, fanzine. Uh, he did an entire issue of that recently, and that was an autobiographical thing. Uh, it's called Loisada, or Lower East Sider, or whatever, but it's spelled all crazy. So, anyways, look for Bobby Madness and Fluke fanzine to find that. Um... Yeah, I mean, it's it's not like I have some kind of stranglehold on Bobby Madness's comics yeah. output. I'm, uh, you know. Yeah. But yeah, it's I went, Bobby's one of those guys when I found his comics. It was, uh, it was crazy. That was, yeah. I, I was just, because at first they're baffling and they're confusing and you're like, wait, where's this guy coming from? Like, holy shit, is he like which part of this is serious and which part is a joke and you know your head kind of flips for a little while reading those comics but then after I read a bunch of them I was like okay I kind of like you get a better idea like a rounder idea of where he's coming from and uh, it took me a long time to find him he was here in town but <clears throat> I couldn't find him I tried for a long time <clears throat> finally tracked him down where he was working and it was hard to get comics out of him in the beginning just to just even bring me the ones he'd been drawing but he's another one of those people that was you know he wasn't being published but he just kept making comics anyways he just sort of naturally does it to kind of fall out of his hand Casanova and Bobby both have that uh, that quality where they naturally can generate comics and they're just both so naturally talented and captivating that those comics are just whether you like them or not they're you know pretty amazing it just pours right out yeah, I mean, some people just have it on tap, and both of those guys have that. Now, in the stack of stuff you'd given me, um, Cameron Fursey, Fursley? Forsley. For Forsley, yes. Yes, Forsley. I'm sorry, Cameron. Uh, which is this weird, super berserk, like, post-S. Clay Wilson uh, kind of madness. And is he a tattoo artist? Or... Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting to try to put your finger on what Cameron Forsley is doing. Um, he's just another one of those guys who's just constantly going. He's constantly generating amazing stuff. Um, I can see what you mean by Wilson. He has a... He has such a natural kind of quality to his stuff, though, that Wilson doesn't have. There's, It almost seems like there's no labor in Cameron's stuff. Yeah. It's so small and wiggly, this little noodly world. And, you know, it's sort of like a, like a really sharp kind of 
nightmarish world version of like a Theo Ellsworth kind of universe, you know, like yeah. it's more grimy though. It's more industrial nightmare, like city shit living, you know, like he's, he's really laboring a lot of like beautiful work on like showing you some really disastrous, terrible stuff about humanity. And it's, I think it's really terrifying and nightmarish because he creates this world. I mean, it's a world like you can see everything he's not he's he's like just bearing nothing yeah 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 cameron forsley stuff is amazing uh that being said it's it's repellent to some people because it's it's so like gross and true and so you know he's clearly worked on it i mean i think it's worrisome to people yeah to see a manifestation of reality that like kind of concentrated he's uh he's amazing we're talking about tat rat by the way i believe mm-hmm. if i'm not mistaken is that yeah. the series you're referring to yeah a little tiny mini comics like yeah yeah he's uh stuff he makes his living doing tattoos so yeah he's amazing comics allow That's... him to draw the more visceral stuff that you can't necessarily put on someone's body at first, he was one of those guys where my instinct was like, okay, no way, this guy's like on fire, this guy's a rocket, like, it's not gonna, I don't need to publish this guy, like, I don't need to try to focus my energy in his direction, because he's like, he's got it, you know, yeah. someone else is on it. But as like Time and Tide and all that shit, and you know, his books weren't really coming out, and he was mailing me stuff, and he sent me this issue of Tat Rat, and it just blew my mind. And I was like, "Man, is anybody putting this out?" And he's like, "No, nah, no, I'm just printing them with my brother. You know, we do these other zines." And I was like, "Well, man, I'll put this out for you." And he's like, "All right, cool." And he sent me the proofs to the first first four issues, and yeah, I mean, I don't know. I yeah, I love that <laughs> guy's stuff. That guy's amazing. <laughs> terrifying, terrifying. It's a really but he's got these really great kind of uh, super chill comics in there too. Like, you, you know, you just kind of cool like moonscape and like a mushroom growing and it turns into like a rocket ship. And it's cool. It's a, uh, it's very psychedelic. It's very raw. I, I liked it. It was, it was very, yeah, raw, rough, just kind of a burst of manic energy. Um, it's like I almost want to make a comparison to like Joe Coleman. Yeah, I can see that totally. That's a complete. I mean, but they're obviously in the same kind of weird universe where yeah, their stuff has this almost tapestry quality because of the the way they use line work and hatching. There's this kind of yeah, yeah, like a little bit of burlapy quality around the edge. It seems like you know. But I but this is like Joe Coleman is like performing for someone where this other stuff is not the same it's not performative it's just like getting it out yeah no i mean you can see that this is uh personal without like a lot of labor yeah like it's yeah sometimes somebody draws a lot of detail and you're like holy shit like this guy went crazy like look at all these perspectives and maths and it's like a you know it's a feat and then some people can just fill something within a complete, you know, completely intense, believable universe. Um, Have you ever looked at Patrick Keck's mini-comics? 
Maybe. I don't know. He's really good. Um, K-E-C-K. Um, Keck. His stuff is... He has a similar thing. It's, you know, it wouldn't. I wouldn't say the drawings are similar, but, like, his universe that he creates or just the world inside of his drawings is... It's so... It's a world, you know? It's a believable place. Like, you can see it, you know, if you know that he knows what's around the corner or if he doesn't know what's around the corner, he can definitely find out for you. I mean... Yeah. There's a real thing happening there. That kind of stuff is amazing to me. I I love those kind of comics where you can kind of immerse into these these worlds and just hang out. Now, one of the things uh, you you mentioned earlier that I said I want to follow up on was uh, Richard Corbin. Um, yeah. Because I remember once when I was in Floating World talking to you, and you're going off about uh, Corbin's <laughs> Corbin's movies that he made at some point early on in his career. Oh. Yeah. Like, I don't know if you'd seen any or just, like, had heard rumors of these things existing. So there's a Richard Corbin movie. It's called Dark Planet. Um, and essentially, without being told this, this is sort of what it seems like watching it, is that he would shoot parts of this movie in segments over time. So you can see sort of him working with different sets of equipment and different cast members and different, you know, stage scenarios, or there's a piece that's in a forest. It's got uh, Bruce Jones, the, uh, the comics writer, artist in it. Um, it's, uh, I like it a lot. You know, it's full of Richard Corbin art. There's a claymation of his, there's paintings for backgrounds. Uh, you know, there's, guys with gorilla masks and sh uh, like machine guns and you know it's very Corbin-esque and it's interesting to see him deal with actors and regular reality and try to get those same things out of it yeah um I really dig it uh he's in one of his art books he's kind of he's kind of and that's it's not pejorative but he's kind of like dismissive of it being maybe like a cinematic type of movie. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm pretty into the, you know, the video thing, um, but also the comics thing. So I've got these sort of collections of movies that are comics related. Uh, one's, you know, like movies that are from comics. Another one is like movies about comics, kind of like nonfiction analysis stuff. And then the other one is uh, movies made by comic book people. Um, and so I've got a collection of that stuff too um, and that's an interesting thing you know because for me I'm usually looking at it from the perspective of being familiar with their comics and their art and to see the movie is just sort of like seeing another interesting side to the artist um, I'm really into comics mostly Yeah. so for me, that's where the curiosity lies. You know, I saw a bunch of movies where I was like, okay, yeah, like, I'm not really into this guy's comics, but, uh, you know, this movie's okay. Maybe he's even better off making movies than he is comics. Um, and so for me, the Corbin thing was really personal, though, because I've got a, a ton of Corbin stuff, and I have the comics he made during those eras also, you know, that's sort of recognizable at certain parts. You're like, oh, wow, he's... He's doing this thing like he was really into this thing for quite a while and like he didn't do it again 
for a long time. So, uh, yeah, Dark Planet, though. I think that Richard Corbin said he made 200 copies. Wow. So, yeah, good one. luck. <laughs> you have, do, is the your... copy I have is very suspicious looking. <laughs> I was given a... I was given one of those uh, videos with like a kind of home printer sticker, kind of Dark Planet. Richard, you know, it didn't even say Richard Corbin. It just had the date or whatever. It was very yeah. generic. And I was like, oh, is this that thing? And then I watched it and I was like, oh, my God, it's that movie. It so, looks like really Corbin-y. Yeah, I, when I, it was, yeah, that was a difficult thing for me to draw, redraw that box. I don't enjoy redrawing other people's paintings. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a frustrating thing for me. Uh, but it was interesting also because I love his stuff so much that I just could sort of look at it as like, this is a study, like, there's no way in hell. It's... But, you know, try to get these shapes, like, break in these shapes, and then just try to work similar techniques. Like, I can't stipple like that guy. and He's got these airbrush things going on, and, you know, I don't have an airbrush. So... It's so tough with him because, like, all that early stuff is so amazing. And he's still amazingly prolific, but he's just, like, separated himself from his own work after a certain point in time. I think a lot of artists definitely don't want to look at certain parts of their past. And I know that, you know, he had a pen name for a while, uh, which is Gore. And... I think that he doesn't want to see that material anymore. And I don't know if that was, you know, intended to be similar to like, you know, like Graham Angles with the with the ghastly thing where he was kind of ashamed of it, but Yeah. Maybe it was. I mean it definitely things like that are a tip of the hat to guys coming up with pen names, of course, which I'm sure there's a lot of lineage there beyond the those two guys. But yeah, it's my understanding that Richard Corbin doesn't want to see certain works reprinted which is you know it makes sense i guess yeah we just want to see yeah he used to do the coloring on some of those warren magazines i think you can get some of those uh spirit magazines that look amazing and it turns out you know it's like richard corbin was doing the coloring on some of those Mm -hmm. it's pretty interesting he's an interesting guy man he's a yeah he's pretty amazing and so comics and history is really is something you're really into like you were talking to me once yeah uh about um like you're going through an avatar obsession um well i found that i mean it's an interesting company i don't know obsession is probably is definitely the wrong term to use (laughs) just because i don't have very many of those comics a fascination Um, yeah well it is interesting to see you're like oh like what's this company about like and, uh, you know, like that's where Juan Rip's art came to my like, attention. And I really dig that guy's stuff. And, uh, I mean, they wound up publishing, you know, like new Alan Moore books. So, I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty great. But yeah, I think that, that it's sort of like a front for a porno thing or it was, you know, to some degree, there was a lot of information that didn't seem like it was available, but was sort of like it looked purposefully pruned on the internet when I looked into it for a while. I was like, this is really weird. There's like this actual gap of information here. And then I found like, you know, those links and I'm like, they're red. They don't work anymore. And you're like, Oh yeah. So it seemed like there was something there. And Juan Rip sort of talks about in an interview, um, 
that he had done this comic uh, as like a as a job for them or what was a precursor maybe to them existing that was like a porno star comic and that uh, that sort of like stimulated the relationship into like actual comics making beyond just like porno comics I think mm-hmm. so um, yeah I don't know I guess I do like have a lot of trivia probably about that thing those things but and yeah the comics history thing is, is awkward because I wouldn't really say that I'm big on comics history I think I'm just really into what I'm into and yeah. when I find something I try to just dig into it as much as I can and see what's going on there I like to sort of figure it out and try to make connections and see all that stuff I like to you know, if I find somebody I really like, it's also good to see if you can figure out what they were into because, yeah, then you can look at it like, oh, he's really into this author. And then you can look at that author and be like, oh, my God, this makes sense. Like, he loves this theme and this theme shows up in this book. And, like, he's obsessed with this book. I never realized it. And you can see that sometimes. And I don't know. That's just a new way to find interesting things for me. I think I just like to dig around like you- that. Did you go through anything like that with all the films you watched for, for Video Tonfa? It definitely did, and I mean, it's probably even more from when I was younger, where I couldn't figure out what movies to watch, so I was trying to keep track of the, that stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, it was mind-blowing to me to figure out that the guy that made Robocop and the guy that made Total Recall were the same was the same guy, and then I could not see it anymore. I mean, I could definitely watch them, but I like that was like an interesting revelation for me as like a younger guy. Was that there was people to keep track of? Like, oh shit! Like, this guy makes movies I like. Like, what's going on here? Like, what else does he make? And you find those video watchdog books or whatever. That was a big deal for me back then because you could look at the they had these lists and stuff. Uh, one of one of those books would put like directors' ten favorite movies lists in the back, and it just had a huge amount of directors listed and stuff like that was always great because you know that's how I found out that's how I actually got into reading regular books because I was mostly just reading reading comics, and then I'd read interviews and those guys would talk about like an actual book, you know, and I was yeah. like, oh shit, maybe I'd actually read that book, and then I'd go and check and you know. I started reading actual books, and I was like, "Oh, this this can be cool. Like, it doesn't have to be a drag every time." So, you know, it's beneficial to me to like have been that way. But uh, yeah, I think I just kind of dig into things. Did you, when kind of when watching the movies that made up the book, um, were they all kind of a process of watching stuff, or is the stuff you just like you wanted to do a strip on a movie you liked, or do a page on? something at first it was purely like journal chronicle every movie i watched but eventually you know i watched movies every night and i wasn't getting a draw i wasn't drawing fast enough and i tried to be fast i mean i tried to make it like i made all these weird rules about drawing and i changed them over time but um yeah i couldn't keep up at one point after i had like 45 movies to draw I really, I was like avoiding watching a movie one time. Like, we were all at uh, San Diego, and we all had a house together. And uh, Dylan brought a projector, and we were watching movies on the wall. And you know, there's probably like four or five movies in a row that night. And I was like, ah, like I definitely can't do this. Like, 
I can't remember all these and like, get the posters done. And at that point, I was like, okay, no more. No more. Yeah. Just do as many as you can. Try to do as many as you can. Like, cut the cord, let the 45 go. Just keep moving forward. Try to record as much of it as you possibly can. So, I mean, sometimes it would be like, oh, this is a great movie. I definitely got to do this one. And other ones, it would be like, this sucked. You know. I really need to do this one. Yeah, I tried to avoid being really negative about it. So I've actually kind of gotten a keener sense of what I'm interested in movies from it because I'll look at it and what would have just been like a general curiosity before. Like, oh, maybe it's good. It's got that one guy in it. Now I'm like, this looks like the kind of stuff I hate. Like, I'm not really into this. Like, I'm going to I'm gonna hold off. I'm going to check out something I have a little more actual curiosity about. Yeah. Because, yeah, if I didn't finish watching a movie, it's not really fair to review it. So, you know, and that's like a bummer that comes with, like, uh, like the whole, like, watching movies digitally thing. is like I just wind up watching crap. But, um, oh, but it didn't like really Netflix. affect the way I was doing stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's all no good for me, but I do it. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I would actually sometimes, like, spot a movie and be like, holy shit, dude, I got to do that one. You know, like, I got to do it. And that that's – I kind of tried to put that under control by – kind of setting little themes for myself like the comic book movies thing sort of really took shape and crystallized as a result of that having those three different sections um but then i also recognized i was like oh i really should look at the body of work of you know certain people you know certain actors that i like or someone who only has like five or six movies like i did a little punisher movie zine and i did a little uh child's play zine you know yeah because i was like oh i can these are you know encapsulated i can watch them i can do them and then i have a little thing and it all works together so i was like oh i could do little stuff like that and i was like all right you know i always kind of say like stephen king movies suck and then i say except for and i list like 10 movies and you know and whoever i'm talking to is like probably listing another 10 movies and i was like yeah i gotta stop doing that i gotta i gotta really get an idea of what's going on with these Stephen King movies so I was like alright I'm going to review them I'm going to try to like watch as many as I can and just keep going and accumulate yeah, you know a collection of Stephen King reviews and at that point I think I'll have a different point of view on them and I didn't even realize how many movies there were I was really kind of like setting myself up with that one I still haven't accomplished that list um, <laughs> It's quite a few movies. Check out that IMDb, and then there's some uh, there's some fan websites for Stephen King that have way more thorough um, like lists stuff, and stuff, stuff like that. that he may have written but didn't attach his name to. And in some ways, it was a you know there's yeah or like someone adapted it as like a student film, but the student film got out and it's been around and you know it got into video stores or some dang thing. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. And there is that stuff where there's like TV series like those children of the corn movies i don't think that they continue to pull from the source material at some point so i don't know how i feel about that i'll probably do those <laughs> like as an old man or something like that if i get a chance like i'm finally gonna do a tonsil and children of the corn seven or whatever the heck they're up to you know so it's like, but um i'm trying to focus on the ones that are more like you know more canonized or more key or kind of drawn from yeah. Um, but those kind of things like that really did sort of start to affect the way I was watching movies because I, I was way more like maybe not casual about it but 
I think just flippant about like, oh, what's this thing? What's that thing? Just jumping around. So I think I have kind of put a little bit of, I don't know. I don't know if it's perspective, but I look at movies in a slightly different way, but certain things I've become way more open-minded about also. So it's a, it's pretty cool. I like Stephen King movies quite a bit more now than I think I probably would have told you prior to doing the book. That's a good change, I guess. Yeah, yeah, he's interesting. And I can really see why I don't like certain Stephen King movies, quote-unquote Stephen King movies. Yeah. Now, um, I want to go back into a little bit about the comic book movies. Um, yeah. What are some of the cartoonist movies we wouldn't know about? Um, I mean, there's the Mike Elred Almost. G-Men movie. Well, there's a Mike Allred movie that he stars in and directed also called uh, Astro-esque. And uh, um, I got that through, uh, you know, it was in Diamond or whatever in the 90s. I got it back then. and I wish I still had it because I really want to review it. Um, but I do have that G-Men from Hell movie. That's got William Forsyth in it. Um, but um, there's, I mean, there's a ton of them out there. Uh, Sam Keith made a movie that's mm-hmm. about uh, like mountain climbing, like hiking. It's like what? a hiking thriller. Yeah, I think it's I think it's called Take It to the Limit or something like that. Oh, but look up I, Sam Keith. I remember seeing a trailer for it. I think. A yeah, I mean, I haven't ago. found the movie yet. Unfortunately, I'd love to find it if anybody knows how to do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, like Brian Polito made a movie that I saw on TV one day, um, and it seemed pretty watchable and you know it made sense too like i was like oh yeah this is a girl's dress in his comics and stuff <laughs> and i was like he, he's he's totally got like his taste down but it seemed like pretty apropos <clears throat> apropos um but yeah uh movies like there's an there's uh pat boyette made some movies <clears throat> i think one of them is called dungeon of harrow that one seems to be around uh if you check out like the uh like you know, 8,000 movies for 10 cents on DVD kind of things at Target or Walmart or something. They have those huge anthology collections. Yeah. Uh, Dungeon of Harrow pops up on those, I think, because it's probably copyright free or something. But he made quite a few movies. Um, you know, and it's like advanced amateur or whatever. Or it's hard to say, you know, if you had like a professional director of photography and like the right equipment, like. You know, and maybe a pro actor or two. Like, you might not even know the difference between one or the other. But um, do you know Pat Boyette's comics? Yeah, yeah. He's in, um, was he in Charlton stuff? Uh, I think he had some Charlton stuff. He had, uh, I think, yeah, I found his stuff in Warren magazines early on. And then uh, I think, yeah, I found him in a few reprint things. And then, uh, yeah, he was, he's really cool. Um but yeah, there's a there's a ton of that stuff out there where people were making. I mean, Frank Tashlin, <clears throat> like he's another one of those guys where he's kind of maybe more actually from animation or something. But there's like a weird comic book quality to that stuff. Um, I wouldn't say he's actually a comics person, but um, there's a. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you ever find the uh, Firearm movie that came with the issue zero? I did. I'd actually comics. seen it many years ago. Uh, I reviewed it recently and uh, uh, ran it in Pork Magazine. So I think it's. I think maybe it's actually in the book. Actually, now that I think about it, maybe it's not. Shit. Well, 
either way, I did. Uh, without having re-seen that comic book villains movie, I think it's my favorite of the James Robinson things that have gone to screen. I didn't know of. there was things other than his uh, script rewrite of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Yeah, it's hard to say like where what's going on with that movie, but um, yeah, it didn't seem like it was like Hollywood did not seem receptive to his uh, talents. No. But I think that was probably a real big bummer for him. Yeah. I, you know, when I was younger, like, he was the... Because I was probably a teenager when the Starmans were coming out, and I really liked them a lot. And it was Yeah, that stuff was not happening so much in mainstream comics. He did something... Um, I think, I don't know if it is, like maybe it's my analysis of what happened from the folks that came over from England um, for the comic scene during those times, but I think that things that are going on at the fringe of comics are far, far away what goes on in like the center of mainstream comics, and when people can bring those desperate things together and get them to click, it works really well. I mean, I think that's like the, the strength of like of like Alan Moore or somebody like that where he's essentially made an underground comic but he made it look like your superhero comic yeah. and it's like and he just like flipped your head yeah so i think James Robinson essentially was taking sort of the the more like autobiographical like kind of chill like romance of like pop culture thing going on um, and he like embedded that in comics and he had like a really nice kind of journal kind of quality to his writing where I mean, it was very beautiful. It didn't seem journal like, yeah, you know, he, he was just dumping his guts or something like that. But it, uh, it really seemed like he was kind of like speaking of something fairly, fairly personal. Yeah. And so that really connected, I think for me, um, so and it had like that romantic pop culture stuff, you know. He was like really into all this weird collecting all this weird crap, and I don't know about you, but I felt like I was, you know, had a lot of weird crap that I was collecting already at that point. Yeah, no, I, I'm suffering from the uh, getting overwhelmed by a collection thing you're talking about earlier. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I mean, how we, I mean, we kind of set ourselves up in certain ways. I mean, I mean that's our job, I guess. Like we're hunter gatherers or something. <laughs> You know, we don't have to worry about food and shelter anymore. So now it's like, oh, whoa, look at that mini comic. <laughs> and you yeah. have 5,000 mini comics, apparently. Yeah, no, exactly. Like, oh, I need more disco records. <laughs> um, well, I mean, you know, as long, as long as it's keeping you kind of inspired, I think it's good to have that stuff, though. But, uh, yeah, it's a, we've made like, very strange lives for ourselves. Yeah, I, uh, I feel bad for my girlfriend sometimes. Most of the time. Well, you know, I mean, you probably shouldn't feel bad for somebody else. That's not healthy for you, dude. <laughs> uh, what are you, you going to do? I'm Canadian. That's that's part of our uh, our national pastime. <laughs> We're just in a constant state of sorry. <laughs> well, um, now, uh, earlier, before we started asking you what you have coming up, and you said you have a new book coming up, or a new comic by someone... Uh, Amy Kutab? Oh, uh, yeah, Amy Kutab. Um, we just put out that book, uh, Earth Story. Earth Story. Um, and that, yeah, we just put that out. It came out at Short Run, Seattle. 
which was maybe five weeks ago. <clears throat> so that was really cool for me because I missed the previous year, which was a bummer because it's my, I think it's probably my favorite show to go to. It's got a really good vitality to it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just a cool one. I think essentially, you know, I mean, Seattle is so huge. It's like an inter- international, interna- <clears throat> an international city, but like its comics culture doesn't really seem like super connected or something. I can't really tell, um, but it it's seems this- like there's a it seems like there's a disconnect. So when something does happen, like everybody's like, oh shit, you know, like like people show up to that show and there's actually like a curious audience that actually cares about comics. It's, it's not some, I mean, a lot of the times you wind up seeing the same clientele even over and over at shows, but, and I'm sure there's an element of that with short run, of course, but yeah, the vitality there is really, really great. I love it. Um, but yeah, Amy's book came out for that. So it was, it was super great. Amy was, uh, doing portraits of people. Nice. At her, at her own table. Now, I guess you can order that book from her online. Is there anywhere else folks can find it? Do you have any stores you know that have it? Uh, it is available at Floating World Comics and Cosmic Monkey Comics, respectively, at the moment. Um, I talked to a few people recently, so we'll see. Maybe it'll pop up other places. I'm very bad about distribution. Are you in um, John Porcelino's Spit and a Half? I'm not. I think that uh, John's like pretty amazing. That Spit and a Half thing is, my, yeah, it just blows my mind. Every time I look at it, I just kind of have to almost step away from it. It's, <laughs> he's got uh, he's got so much amazing stuff on there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm terrible with that stuff. It's I like making the comics. I like reading the comics. I like. You know, I like selling the comics, but yeah, I'm not, uh, I don't have the computer stuff down and that's a deal breaker. I think these days for people, but that being said, people could find me on Facebook and they can just ask me for the book and I'll send it to them, you know, and they send me the dough or whatever. I'm not against it. I'm just not, uh, I love that you, so you don't have a computer at home at all. I don't, I mean, I have the, whatever the phone, you know, which I like is the new computer. But yeah. I don't have, I don't have you know like the faculties for all this this stuff. I, I like think, movies, but I don't find computers appealing. I think even Chester Brown has a computer at home now. Well, I mean, you know, he's he's probably different than he portrays himself in his comics. I would imagine, but uh, it's not that I absolutely do not want a computer. I mean, I publish comics. I'm constantly using computers, but that's the other thing. I'm constantly using computers and. Somehow I still managed to do it. So, yeah. uh, I mean, yeah, it definitely requires help and favors from people, especially with like that when Vision Quest comes out on a quarterly basis, you know, I kind of have definitely relied on some really awesome people. Uh, and- Andrew Scully put together pretty much, you know, all the computer work on the first, what was it five issues or so? I mean, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's always a collaborative thing for me anyways. I don't ever kind of just you know pull a rabbit out of my hat and vision quest is a local paper you do in Portland. it is it's uh we completely lifted the model from seattle's intruder mm-hmm. um that paper is uh, i guess unfortunately was really amazing 
Um, and it really showed me that, that there was this way to get comics to people that was one of the things I've been looking at for years. I find the financial elements of comics really frustrating. I just dig comics and I kind of wish that there wasn't all these obstacles. Uh, comic shops are usually a little bit hard to find. You have to kind of look for them and then you go into them. And if you're not well versed already, I mean, they can be confusing or, you know, kind of, I don't know, uncomfortable for people or confusing for sure, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, that's just the nature of the beast, but I think comic shops have gotten better, but it's um, one of those things people really have to, and then they have to pick something and then they have to spend like four bucks on it. And hopefully it's good. Maybe it's not. I mean, there's a lot of bad comics, unfortunately, but I dig them. So for me, it's always been like, okay, how do I get people to check this stuff out? You know, I really don't, I don't care about the money. So what the intruder model had was everybody pays for their page which was like uh, like 40 bucks, you know? Yeah. And if, if you make a mini comic, you're probably spending 30, 40 bucks, and then, you you know, you get a bunch of copies. and But, I mean, you get like 30 or 40 copies, maybe. You, maybe you probably get more like 20 copies of your comic. And then you try to sell them. I mean, maybe 20 people see them, 20 people who already know you're cool. It's not uh, it's not really circulating your work. You're not, you're not going to probably grow very much, you know, as an artist with, with that audience. And nobody that would dig it is probably going to be able to find it. But with the free comic, nobody has to be there to sell it. It's just a pile of free books, you know. I mean, you just they just go. Yeah. You, there's, you know, 32 different artists in each issue. I mean, hopefully somebody will find something they like, you know, something in there will speak to hopefully a lot of people out there. So, you know, it's I think it's been good for the comics and it's good for the people too because they weren't going to hit you know 6,000 people or 7,000 people before I mean no that's a huge audience I mean there's actual chance that like oh whoa this person says the kind of stuff I dig and then like they go look them up and they're like holy crap like they've got all these books oh I love them and like those things are more likely to happen this way and it just kind of keeps it keeps people working too I think a lot of people don't have, they kind of lose that drive for like finishing comics or for presentation. And, you know, you see people like rush, try to rush a book out for the show because all of a sudden they're like, oh shit, I should have something. I should have been doing something like instead of just, you know, like beating myself up or whatever it is. And then, you know, the show comes up and people try to get it out. And this sort of creates a, a venue that's, you know, I find better not to waste. Yeah that space you know i mean you've got like a plot in the community garden like it's better not to like just like you know trash it but you can do whatever you want to as long as it's comic and not porn (laughs) um but yeah it's been really good i think it i mean there's people that weren't getting recognized before that i think have more audience now but um i'm hoping also that this would increase uh comics literacy amongst the like the curious people in town yeah so i think you know comics is kind of a frustrating thing for some people to read so you know not having the financial uh choice to make when you pick it up it's like if you're curious about it you can just grab it you know well portland's such a hipster set scene or town that 
there's lots of weird venues and spaces that would be into having something like that. Yeah, around. that's the that's the other hope is that so it, again with the distribution on that stuff, um, we've gone in the route that essentially we try to divide the number of you know pages by the print run, and then for each page you you know that page that person gets that number, which could be like 180 or 250, kind of depending on the number of pages of the book. And not everybody wants those, but the idea is that hopefully they would take some, at least, and then sprinkle them around in the spots they go to, like their cafe that they go to, or the bar that they go to, or, you know, the comic shop that they shop at, or, you know, whatever interesting places they go to in the world that maybe a free paper would find a home. And so hopefully it can kind of wriggle out into like everybody's unique little you know, patterns and circles that they've created for themselves and, you know, get around town, one would hope. I don't know really what happens there, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's that way again, when, you know, I think the best person to sell a comic to you is the person who made it. It's, you know, you talk to somebody and then you find out that they're an artist and you, you know, people always ask, what do you do? And then they, oh, I make comics. Like, oh, I'd love to see any of your comics. And, that's invariably where it always seems to fall apart whenever I've witnessed it. It's like, oh, geez, yeah, man, I wish I had some on me. I don't really have any the publisher, this or that, or, you know, I never, blah, blah, blah. And, but if it's a free paper and maybe you got a few in your bag, it's easy. Or, you know, you're like, oh, <clears throat> you know, there's a newspaper stand on the corner of Belmont and 34th. You can always get them out of that. Or, you know, they always have them at the store. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, it's, it just kind of, hopefully it's it's going to show people that there's a lot of other stuff going on in comics. Because I think a lot of people think they like comics. I think most people in America think they like comics, at least, you know, based off of what's going on with, uh, like, the comic tropes in pop culture. Yeah. Um, so people are like, oh, yeah, comics great, but they still probably don't have any or actually read them. But then if there's a free one there and they go through it, you know, they might be like, God, this one sucks. I hate this one or what a bunch of, you know, shit. But then they'll be get to one and like, oh, my God, this is the best thing ever. Oh, this guy's great, you know, and that's cool. That person found something that's not Iron Man or, you know, copyright to like a corporation that's, yeah. you know, not really inspired to make, you know, art. A great comic I think yeah well I mean they're it's they're doing a thing they're doing their own thing it's it's absolutely not bad or damaging I mean I think that those those attitudes are are totally understandable but uh, I mean those guys make their own kind of comics I mean you know people make uh, bad Frankenstein movies but like we all still love Frankenstein yeah you know there's a couple Godzilla's out there that you would kind of rather forget existed but Godzilla is still great you know um, so I mean these things are you know they're semi undamageable in that way I mean you could definitely have some some bummers out there but um, I would prefer that people see these these edges because most people have enough personal life experience to recognize what's going on when they're reading someone else's comic they might think it's a bunch of crap but you know that's their thing I think there's there's a lot of variety in there so that's the big hope, you know, like you get to the salad bar, you probably don't dig everything, but you know, you can get some stuff at the Sizzler. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully most people could. 
That's a good hope. Hopefully we're better than a Sizzler, but I think so at least. Depending on your taste. <laughs> I rarely go to the Sizzler anymore. I don't know if I've ever been to a Sizzler. Uh, it's the sort of a buffet restaurant. Uh, that sounds about right. I don't know if they have them <laughs> up here in Canada. I'm sure you've got some sort of mediocre doppelganger up there, though. Yeah. It's a, it's, just a, it's one of those chains, you know? Yeah. I'll, but, I'll, I'll keep yeah, an eye out. Uh, yeah. Sorry, maybe a bad analogy <laughs> on my part. <laughs> a localized analogy. Um, I think on so that... I think I got pretty far off topic there. <laughs> That's okay, Tim. Uh, a reminder, folks, I've been talking to Tim Goodyear, and his book is Video Tonfa uh, from Floating World Comics, and you can find him behind the counter there on finer days, um, and maybe at the Sizzler when he's hungry, um, as well as Tim's comics published under Teenage Dinosaur, uh, which I very much recommend checking out at better comic book stores uh, that carry such stuff. Um, thank you again, Tim. I really appreciate taking the time thank to you, be Robin. with me oh, yeah. at this late no, hour. No, it's good. It's always a fun show. Thanks, Glad man. to be part of it. Mm-hmm.